Welcome to the CSIS Podcast. I'm Colin Quinn. We're back and we're looking about 7,000 miles west of Washington to Beijing, where this week the Chinese Communist Party completed its 19th National Congress, and its president, Xi Jinping, was the star of the show. His thought has been enshrined in the party's constitution, putting him on a par with the revolutionaries Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping. The party's Politburo Standing Committee was also unveiled, with no obvious successor to Xi in the ranks, suggesting he's sticking around for the near future. This is a consolidation of power by the Chinese president, but it almost seems like something more. To help us understand Xi's ascent is Chris Johnson, CSIS's Freeman Chair in China Studies. I mean, my view has been from the beginning that Xi Jinping had two goals going into the Party Congress. The first was to cement his position as what we call the ideological arbiter of the party. And the best part about being ideological arbiter is that it has no expiration date until your own expiration date. (laughs) And I think basically that's what Xi Jinping was aiming for. And by getting his own thought by name in the party constitution, this is a very significant feat. He's the first person since Deng Xiaoping to have his name put in the constitution. And you can argue that since he got thought in the same way that Mao Zedong had thought, um, he's outdone Deng Xiaoping, who only got theory. Um, Secondly, on the succession, uh, I'm not surprised that he hasn't signaled the succession. Xi Jinping's entire first five years has about has been about keeping his colleagues and his enemies within the party off balance about his intentions. Um, this means that he has unfettered uh, ability to run the party the way he wants, and it could be good. Um, you know, there are areas where um, they have not made much progress, economic reform being a key one. Um, will he use this power to make some movement there? I think we've seen some signs uh, around the party Congress that he will. Um, Explain to people who maybe are not as as uh, clued into this. What what is Xi Jinping thought? And uh, well, I think we're still mean? trying to define that. Uh, but what's striking about it is this notion that China has entered a so-called new era um, under Xi Jinping. Um, obviously, part of this is politics. By claiming that it's a new era, um, one of the propaganda memes that's been around since Xi Jinping first arrived as China's new leader is that effectively in the PRC's history there have been three eras: the Mao Zedong you know, revolution and liberation period, Deng Xiaoping's period of reform, these couple of guys who we don't talk about anymore in between, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, and now the Xi Jinping era. Um, And that's all the propaganda that we're seeing um, suggests that. And to what's been interesting is that they seem to have decided we're going to make this a new era, and then they backfilled the propaganda to justify why this is a new era. So for example, we see a new target that we haven't seen before between these two very important anniversaries, the 100th anniversary of the party in 2021 and the 100th anniversary of the PRC in 2049. Smack dab in the middle, 2035, Xi Jinping is telling us that's an important midpoint to achieve certain goals. And the idea is we're in a new era because China's global position, everything related to what the party is doing to make China strong and prosperous, it's all happening, and it's happening faster than the party thought it would, and that's why we need a new era. Do you think this is this five years, obviously, from the last party congress? Do you think things have largely gone to plan for Xi? Or you talk about backfilling. Has it kind of been a, a smooth road? I think it's been smooth from the point of view of his power consolidation. Uh, that he got started on very early. I think there's a case to be made that he had to leave a lot of unfinished business, though, while he worked on that power consolidation. You know, the first five years have really been about anti-corruption, cleaning up the party, uh, dealing with powerful constituencies, the military, state-owned enterprises who were blocking uh, the agenda. And the 
biggest piece of unfinished business, as we discussed a moment ago, is economic reform. Um, in 2013, they put out a very programmatic document at the third plenum that listed all sorts of reform areas and emphasized that markets, the market, should have a decisive role in allocating resources. We have not seen that development since then. Uh, progress on that reform blueprint that was tabled um, has largely been stalled. The encouraging piece is the chief architect of that document, Leo He, Xi Jinping's chief economic advisor, has been promoted to the Politburo as of this morning and looks set to take up very important portfolios to move that agenda forward. So that's the space to watch. The economy is obviously so important to to the to China and China's rise and China's continued rise. It, it all depends on the improvement of the economy. Is that still likely to happen? Is if if not, is that something that then could disrupt this consolidation? Absolutely. And I mean, there's an interesting debate going on, right? So um, one argument, which is a, a very jaded and cynical one, but interesting, is that does the party, who presumably knows better than any outsider where the bodies really are buried in terms of the problems in the economy, um, does the party know that the situation is worse than the outside world believes and what they're doing about proclaiming this new era and you know giving this suggestion that China's on this inexorable path to national greatness is all just a ruse uh, to get people to buy in uh, before the bottom falls out. That's one theory. I, I happen not to, to share that view. I think what uh, they understand Understand is that the economy has certain fundamental problems, debt being uh, the, the, the major one, and that the period for um, putting that off has come to an end and they have to do something about it. Uh, it was very interesting in his work report to the Party Congress, Xi Jinping did not mention two very important targets. The first was um, the idea passed at the last Party Congress of doubling per capita GDP by 2020, and the second was a longer-standing target of doubling the uh, size of the overall economy by 2021. These two targets were forcing the Chinese to keep the economy on tilt, if you will, to achieve those targets. High growth growth, lots of credit, et cetera. Um, by not having those targets in there, Xi Jinping seems to be signaling a tolerance for lower growth, which is what they need, and probably an aggressive effort to clean up debt in the spring. Let's let's turn a bit to foreign policy now. Two of the biggest and most visible initiatives have been the, the One Belt, One Road, and of course, uh, something that CSS has been um, very active in, in tracking, which is these building of artificial islands and outposts in, in the South China Sea. What else is in China's foreign policy do you think is being indicated? And what does those two those two initiatives kind of amount to? Sure. Um, I think uh, the most important factor here is Xi Jinping has, in effect, fundamentally signaled the death knell of the former Deng Xiaoping foreign policy line, which is that China should keep a low profile um, internationally, bide its time and hide its strength. Um, that seems to be gone. It was very interesting. The foreign minister, Wang Yi, at the party congress uh, was asked this question, you know, does this mean that Deng's dictum is, is dead? His answer was, was uh, very evasive, which was to sort of say, well, it's still exists, but we don't talk about it anymore. <laughs> um, it's gone. Um, and I think this was another key piece of unfinished business due to Xi's distraction with the, the politics. In 2014, he gave a major foreign affairs speech at a so-called foreign affairs work conference, where he effectively laid out this message that uh, she, China is already a superpower, and it should start behaving like one. He signaled both before the Party Congress with a few propaganda documentaries that talked about uh, so-called major country diplomacy under Xi Jinping, and now with the speech that they're getting back to that piece of business and intend to do so. Um, this is not necessarily hostile, by the way, for the for the West, but it is a um, clear announcement that we intend 
to play a global role, to have global rules and norms work to our benefit as much as they do everyone else's. On the two issues that you highlight, I think it's very interesting. Belt and Road has been now written into the party constitution, which definitely shows us that it is Xi Jinping's foreign policy um, signature initiative. And therefore, it's too big to fail in the Chinese system. And so we'll see a lot more Belt and Road. Um, likewise, he made a comment about the building of the artificial islands in his political work report, um, suggesting that China is very proud of, of that accomplishment. And I suspect that they've largely succeeded in what they think they need to do in the near term there and will now shift to a policy on the islands that is slow and steady improvement, but making sure that they continue to have a strategic advantage there. How well is the, the Belt and Road Initiative, this, this broad infrastructure push westward? How has that been going? Is it it's something that, you know, obviously it's in the Constitution now. Has it been a success so far? It's been going in fits and starts. I, I think that's fair to say. I mean, one thing that's quite striking and, and that I'm told is a great irritation point for Xi Jinping is that there really is not a single identifiable Belt and Road project that wasn't something that they already had in the toolshed, if you will, um, in the past that was rebranded as Belt and Road. Um, you know, we've had a lot of splashy announcements, especially with regard to Pakistan and a lot of activity by Chinese businesses in Iran, for example, and so on, um, and tensions with India over, over Belt and Road. But it's really hard to point to many signal successes. And I think part of that has been that it's been sort of undisciplined. Xi Jinping himself probably has been too distracted to focus too much on it. I think we're going to see a doubling down now. This has to um, be perceived as successful. And one thing uh, an authoritarian system is good at is unity of purpose. Um, and when they focus their energies in a particular direction, um, it's likely to be effective. You know, look, uh, Belt and Road is not going to be 100 percent successful. If they were to try to execute what they've envisioned, it makes the Marshall Plan look like a joke, you know, by comparison. And, and there are serious questions about the financing um, Chinese government capacity to manage these things and so on. But let's say that they're 40 percent successful. It's still a significant um, uh, change in the region. And, you know, the real issue is to what degree, you know, we did a study on Belt and Road a couple of years ago where our main conclusion was that despite all the worries in the West that this was some geostrategic master plan by China to dominate the world, it was mostly about economics. There's now a suggestion that perhaps that geostrategic element is uh, creeping back into it. And I think that's really the thing to watch on Belt and Road going forward. Um, we talked about China's being able to get things done as an authoritarian country. Um, moving to one that's uh, a little more uh, multipolar in its uh, centers of power, the U.S. How's, how are the uh, Chinese elites looking at the U.S.? What are they saying? Uh, how, how is their confidence there? I think they continue to be very confused about how to how to read the United States, and with good reason. I mean, you know, we have had instances where we send our senior officials there, Secretary Tillerson, for example. Um, you know, he engages in negotiations with the Chinese largely about North Korea, and then is undermined, you know, seemingly by tweets from the president. Um, not a unique phenomenon to uh, to Secretary Tillerson in the cabinet, but it's something that obviously makes the Chinese wonder: um, how do we run this relationship? And I think something that seems to be the case right now is that the bilateral relationship is basically being run by the two presidents. Historically, that's not necessarily a good thing. You know, you want the bureaucracy in there. They're busy men. Each of them are running big countries, big important countries. Um, they can't focus on the relationship. There has to be more empowering of the, the working level people. My sense is that the Chinese view the upcoming summit as an opportunity to, shall we say, push the reset button on the relationship, especially on the tra trade relationship, where they become concerned at the ascendancy of, say, 
uh, Bob Lighthizer from USTR, who has a very strong view about China, um, trade deficit focus, et cetera. You know, the administration, I think, is internally debating what should our economic push at the upcoming meeting be or or in the relationship be? Should we be fighting for market access issues or should we be fighting for trade deals that seemingly lower the trade deficit? And I think there are camps in the administration on both ends of that spectrum. My view is the Chinese are more than happy to sign deals all day long as long as we stay away from the core elements of their industrial policy designed to compete with the United States in our core area, information technology services. You know, they made very clear, uh, we've written several reports at CSIS on this subject about China's technological innovation drive. Um, and that's where we need to be putting our energies. But the deals are always attractive because they get headlines. Right. Um, you talked about this, this summit coming up. Uh, how should the U.S. be approaching it? How should they be in, in engaging at this summit and just more broadly with China? I think the most important thing we could do is fill key positions in the government that are currently unfilled, uh, you know, at the assistant secretary level, at the undersecretary level. Um, it's hard to prepare. Preparing for a summit is hard work. When I was in government, I was on the margins of that several times. Um, and you need shock troops to be able to handle these things because the Chinese are very good at it. Uh, they have a long history. They're excellent record keepers. Um, in many cases, in their foreign ministry and other bureaucracies, they have the same person who's been working that's that summit portfolio for 20 plus years. They know every word that's ever been said. Uh, something the administration, I think, will do, which is very intelligent, is to avoid um, producing a joint statement with the Chinese. The Obama administration produced two of them in 2009 and in 2011. I think both of them were perceived subsequently as mistakes that the Chinese had bested us in those negotiations. And this administration seems to understand that because of its personnel shortcomings right now, that would be unwise. Um, so obviously, one great thing we could do is do that. I think the second piece is we need to have a fundamental understanding of what our China strategy is. You know, the fact that we're two weeks away from a major summit and we haven't decided what the, folk, the focus of our economic push with China is going to be is significant. Um, finally, uh, for to jump five years ahead at, for the next party Congress, um, what is going to be stopping China achieving their goals? What is what is in the way? What are the stumbling blocks they need to be looking out for? I think the principal uh, potential stumbling block for them is their own system. Um, will their own system allow them to do the things they need to do to particularly break through the so-called middle income trap um, and be able to um, really uh, achieve their goal, which is to have a well-off society by the year 2050. You know, I think there's a broad recognition in the senior leadership now that um, the narrow path is the one uh, that they must follow and that the wide path, the attractive path, which is continued credit growth and so on, um, is does sow the seeds of their destruction. But to follow the narrow path, they're going to have to give up some control, most likely. And the party struggles to give up control. Um, and this is really an important factor. I think the other risk in Xi Jinping's um, consolidation of power is that, is there anyone in the system now who can tell him no um, and who can suggest to him that he, if he has a bad idea, it's a bad idea. Um, my guess is that she is a much more pragmatic person than is generally um, suggested. You know, there's a lot of references to him being whimsical like Mao and, and a megalomaniac and so on. Um, my perception is a man who's a pragmatist who does listen um, to these individuals. But when he has declared himself effectively the party personified, um, if you're an official, it's difficult to uh, take bad news to the boss. So that's a risk. And that was Chris Johnson bringing us to the end of today's show. 
I've enjoyed corresponding with those of you who've wrote in with feedback on the show, and I'll try to get to all of you. You can get me at my email, cquinn at csis.org, or on Twitter. That's it for me. Thanks for listening.